welcome to the Middle East Center um, lecture series. So it is called you know, Political Options Following the Gaza Conflict. And for those who don't know me, my name is Rehan Ismail. I am a professor of contemporary Islamic studies at the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies. And I'm also based at the Center, at the Middle East Center. And last week, uh, we invited Professor Yudi Tamir to discuss Israeli public opinion and political options after 7, uh, October 7. And this week, we are very delighted to have Professor Hagar Kotev with us today. And she is a professor of political theory in the Department of Politics and International Studies. She currently works on a project on torture. Um, and bureaucracy in Israel-Palestine in collaboration with the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel. Her recent book, The Colonizing Self, or Home and Homelessness in Israel-Palestine, was published by Duke University Press in 2020. This book looks at the construction of political belonging and territorial attachments in settler colonies. And it's amazing because um, the colonizing self won three awards. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, three <laughs> awards, including the Yale Ferguson Award and the Spitz Prize in Democratic Theory. Uh, it also received honorable mentions at the Mesa Fatima Mernisi's Book Award, the Sussex International Prize, and the IPS International Political Sociology Section ISA, uh, ISA Book Award. We're so lucky. <laughs> so she has many other publications, including another book published by Duke University Press titled Movement and the Ordering of Freedom, uh, that was published in 2015. So before joining SOAS, she held positions and fellowships at the Minerva Humanities Center at, uh, at Tel Aviv University, the Department of Politics and Government at Ben Gurion University, Columbia University Society of Fellows, um, and also a position in Berkeley, uh, California, Berkeley. Where I did my PhD. Oh, you did your PhD. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> were there. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> it was a position that I took, yeah. yeah. Um, so as someone who has you know, traveled extensively and has been to so, you know, been part of many institutions. So we are so very fortunate to have Hagar with us today, and she will be tackling an important topic. The title of the talk is The Settler Movement, political impasses and beyond. Um, without further delay, I will invite Professor Kutif to the podium. Thank you. It was the, the, the best introduction I've ever received in my life, so thank you. And, and thank you, Eugene, for inviting me here um, and giving me this opportunity, and especially for asking me to talk about the settlement movement. Um, so, now I need to figure out that. No, sorry. <laughs> I should have practiced before. How do I do this? It's arrows up and down. Okay, now you're getting all oh, my thoughts. That's the four arrows up and down. Oh, here. Okay, there's so many Yes. Okay. Um, so I want to talk about three moments in the settlement movements today, um, very quickly. Um, we can think about them geographically, we can think about them temporally. Um, the first would cover 
very briefly, um, the period of Oslo 1993 until the eve of October 7th, it will focus on the West Bank, um, even though it is a problematic choice because a lot of what is going on in the West Bank, at least since 2005, has to do with the disengagement from Gaza. Um, that has shaped a lot of the drives of what's going on um, um, in the settlement movement in the West Bank. Um, in the second part of my talk, I will talk about the war currently taking place over Gaza. I would maybe say a few things about how this war has shaped settler violence in the West Bank and then move to Gaza. And then I will talk a bit about what's going on in Israel itself, um, the debates there, and maybe thinking um, further about the future. But before I start, I want to say um, two things. First, I'm going to talk about the settlement movement, but I'm not going to talk about all settlers. There are settlers who object the type of ideologies and political projects that are going, I'm going to outline today. I'm also not going to talk just about settlers. There are growing segments, <coughs> alarmingly growing segments in the Israeli public that embrace this ideology and concrete political plans. So not just settlers and not all settlers. And the second point has to do um, with the relation between this group and the state. So um, I will organize my talk around three figures, if you'd like, to give faces to the more general comments I'm about to give. Um, the first is, is someone who is in a complete agonistic relations to the state. His entire rationale of operation is anti-statist, even sat in prison for a few times. The second is a minister in the new Netanyahu government, yet someone who is a marginal figure, some would say she's a bit crazy. Um, and then the last one is kind of a raising superstar general in the Israeli military. So presumably we're moving from the margin to the center. But we must remember two things. First, that this movement to the center has to do also with the movement of the center to the right. Right? So, so Israel is moving further and further to the right, what allows this movement of these figures to the center. And second, um, and this is something I'm going to return to several times um, in my talk, um, and this is where the point of the beyond may come from, is that the relation of the state to all these figures is much more ambivalent than what may seem. So even the anti-statist figure gets a lot of support from the state, and even the rising superstar general may not serve the interest of the state to the extent that there are such. Um, okay, so already in um, the uh, 1980s, Miron Benveniste came out with the irreversibility thesis. The idea that the settlement movement makes any two-state solution completely impossible. Now, when he talks, um, he published this for the first time, I think, in 1983, there were um, roughly 23,000 settlers um, in the West Bank. Now we're talking about roughly 450,000 settlers in the West Bank and additional about 230,000 settlers in East Jerusalem. And I separate those because the legal status is different. Israel has annexed um, East Jerusalem. Um, but the issue at stake is not just the numbers, which, as you can see, make the irreversibility, irreversibility thesis even more valid today. The issue is also land. And in the, first type of, in the first part of my talk, I want to talk about the project of land grant 
of what is often referred to the new settlement movement um, or the um, Hilltop Youth Movement. And I want to do this by um, talking about this guy. His name is Avriran. Avriran is the founder of this place, Give Otolam. This is the largest organic farm in Israel. It is situated here. Um, so as you can see, it's kind of um, southeast to Nablus. Um, and it creates, so give out a lamb, I have this exciting point here, right? And you can see how it creates, we'll talk about this movement later, how it basically bisects the Palestinian areas um, and separates them. Givatolam is the by far largest producer of free range <coughs> eggs in Israel. Now we can talk a lot about organic agriculture and its relation to the occupation and its normalization. I want to talk about space. So free range eggs require more space, right? The chickens need to be in larger coops and they need to have extra um, space to roam freely outside so that they will qualify as free-range eggs. And if you look at this um, map, you can see how Van has used the chicken coops he built in order to basically spread out over more and more territory um, and take more and more land. Now, when I conducted my research on this particular farm, it was roughly um, 2018. At that point, Van began building another um, chicken coop over there. Um, this is kind of a touristic-ish area. It's called the, the Three Seas Lookout. And the fact that he was building a chicken coop there kind of was a big outrage among other settlers. And when I pulled out this new satellite um, um, image for today's talk, I realized there are no more traces for that coop over there. So the other settlers won, but he built two new chicken coops over here that were not there in 2018. Now, if you look at the topography of this, you can see, and maybe it's actually clearer from the pictures themselves, so this is the one of this 3C lookout that was in the process of construction in 2018. You can see how one basically positions the chicken coops on the hilltops in a way that allows him to create lookout into the Palestinian villages that are situated beneath um, these areas. Um, now, what started as a tent and then um, a few mobile homes became um, um, a, a nucleus farm. So this is the area of the nucleus farm that spreads over 220 acres and the green areas are about 100 more acres of land that one cultivates outside of the nucleus farm. Um, Dror Etkes from Peace Now um, estimates that rather than, rather than the constructions of new houses or new settlements, the fastest growing land grab means in the West Bank today is agriculture. This is how settlers take over more and more lands. Now, let me provide you a bit of a history. Van um, moved to Itamar, which is this settlement over here, in um, 1993, in response, he said, to the Oslo Accord. So this was an act of protest moving towards settlement. Two years later, um, 1995, in response, again, to the um, second Oslo Accord, and specifically to Rabin's decision to put a freeze on new construction in settlement, Van moves to the outside of the fence of Itamar. So he built the first unauthorized construction 
outside the official fence. Um, this was a chicken coop. He then brings um, one mobile home and then another mobile home, and thus basically was established the first outpost in the West Bank. Over the next few years, Ran is moving basically from one hill to another, so from here to here to here. In each of them, they were not there before, right? He built all of them. Um, he would move out of them whenever there would be enough people to settle them. Usually there would be his workers or his, his family members. He has like 15 or 17 or 12 or whatever infinite number of children. Um, and then in um, 1997, he settled in um, Gibraltar. Today, with more than 200 outposts that have joined the 146 um, regularized settlements in the West Bank, we can say that Givotolam was the forerunner of one of the most significant political movements in Israel in the last several decades. Um, and sadly, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the distinction between settlements <coughs> and outputs. Do I need to say something about the yes, okay? Um, so basically, all settlements are illegal according to international law. However, Israel does recognize the legality of some settlements as long as they follow three basic conditions. So first, they need to be built on state land. That is land that has been officially taken from Palestinians by the state. Second, they need to be constructed according to approved, approved municipal plan, like any construction in any other place I'm familiar with. And they need to be um, constructed within the municipal area of wherever they are constructed. Outposts are illegal according to Israel itself because they violate at least one of these conditions and usually at least two of them. So almost all of them are built on privately owned Palestinian land. Actually, this is the rationale to take land that the state is unwilling to take in a way. Um, and all of them, and this is what defines them, um, are built without any um, central planning. Right? So someone brings a mobile phone. Now, this has created a history, a weird history, of illegality in which the state presumably um, um, talks about evicting these spaces, but actually very rarely um, do so. And, and, and I will say something about this in a second, but before that, I want to say that this distinction between settlement and outposts, which is really important, is also completely fictive. Because most settlements are illegal according to these three criteria. Most of them are at least partly built on privately on Palestinian land. So with Tamar, the settlement we started with, is entirely illegal according to Israel. Most of them started as outposts in a way. They, they started without any central planning and at some, at some point um, will regularize later on. But this distinction that, that doesn't exist is nevertheless important because it allows us to explain something about the relations between the state and this movement and the outposts. So I said before that the settlement are not um, a unified entity, neither is the state. Right? There is no such thing as this state as a coherent thing. Um, decisions right, are made in various locations, um, some local, some central. Um, we have attorney generals, we have commanders on the ground, we have the civil administration in the case of the West Bank. We have the prime minister, we have the defense minister, we have the housing or transportation ministers that sometimes enforce with more or less enthusiasm 
the decisions of the Prime Minister and the Minister of Security, and sometimes they have their own enterprises. Um, we have um, 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 Supreme Court justice, local council heads or, or bureaucrats, and many, many, many others. And all these often make different decisions and, and implement different policies in regard to the outputs and actually also in regard to the settlement. The state, we should note, also or is also not a unified entity in regard to its own interests. But the state is composed of groups, and different groups may have different interests, and what may be a disaster for some may be um, a great outcome for someone else, and, and this is where I would want to end with at the end. For now, what is important for me to emphasize is that we have statist actors and non-statist actors that nevertheless operate in collaboration with the state or at least serve the interest of the state um, to the extent that it has one. And that over the years, even though these pull in different directions, we see a more or less of a consolidation into um, one, one place. There is a push to a certain direction. We can call it for now expansion. Um, later we will see that there is more to it. And in this regard, we should also note that over the years, we have a change both in the rhetoric and in concrete legal apparatuses in relation to these outposts. So if at the beginning, right after Oslo, the rhetoric and the legal processes were that of illegality and eviction, right, in a way that allowed different government to wrap the reality of expansion with a discourse of eviction allowing the state to continue this expansionist project, but not in the state's name, what we see in a process that starts roughly in 2012 with the Levy report and kind of culminates in 2017, um, is a shift towards a rhetoric of regularization and legalization and a further integration of this project into the Israeli um, legal system. So basically what I'm saying is that even if we cannot talk about the state when we talk about the outpost, we also are not talking about a group of vigilantes. Right? There are more ambivalent relations there. And with this, I want to return to Rand. So I conducted my research um, on the farm, I said, around 2018. At that time, Rand was a notorious figure in the West Bank. He was known to be one of the most violent people around. Um, testimonies are too many to count. Um, Givat Olam right, is situated right above the Palestinian village. Where are we? Here. Enyanun. Enyanun is actually part of a village that is here and was not captured here, which is called Yanun. So Yanun has two parts, Yanun, Lower Yanun and Enyanun. Um, both the parts of the village suffered a lot from Van's violence, but Enyanun much more. Um, Van and his uh, fellow settlers would, would kind of walk and stroll the um, streets of Enyanun and Yanun with dogs, like big dogs, um, throw rocks, destroy property. Um, Yanun has been disconnected from the electricity grid because Van destroyed um, um, a generator that was installed by the UN. Um, he also um, destroyed a, a water pump installed by the UN, and the, the rationale, as he conveyed it to the villagers, was that they did not ask for his permission to install it. Um, there was also a lot of, of physical violence. 
clubbing people with, um, with M16s, rifles, until their legs shatter, the spine broken, shooting live ammunition at people. At least one man died. Um, so basically, Van and his fellow men were, were driving, and they, they shot a guy. Um, he was 24 at the time. Um, shot him in the leg. He kind of ran away. And then they shot him in the back as he escaped. And they fell to the ground and bled to death. And, well, and died. Um, at that time, when they did that, and when they did many of the other things, um, they were, there were Israeli soldiers nearby. And it is important to say that because it shows that this is not a group of completely outlawed people. This is part, right, of a wider project, status project in a way. One after the other, the families of Armenian um, <coughs> left the village, which was there from 1596. Um, has been emptied on 2002. The last six families left um, to the Palestinian village um, Akraba, which is nearby. Um, in Lower Yanun, there are still some Palestinians <coughs> today. Um, they basically told me that what they do is, is they stay away um, and make sure they do not annoy Iran. Today, however, nearly five years later, Van is all news. Partly because, like the occupation itself, he grew older and more normalized. So today you can go to Gibot Olam and have like enjoy a tasting menu with like great cheese and yogurt and whatever. Um, but also since settler violence became so much more widespread, so much more out in the open, so much more severe, so much more integrated into the government's project that Ran is no longer the unordinary figure he used to be. I want to fast forward to a year ago, roughly a year ago. In December 2022, Netanyahu established his sixth government, which is the most right-wing government um, in the history of Israel, including um, at least one party, two parties, which were outlawed uh, before the racism. Um, with Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is um, a declared supporter of Kahana as the Minister of Internal Security, and Bezalel Smotrich, who is at least as racist, um, as not just um, the Minister of Finance, but also a special minister in the, minister, in the Ministry of Security, who is in charge of the civil um, administration. So basically everything that has to do with settlement. So with these two people in power, and many others, um, basically um, um, Israel sec Israeli security forces, which have always worked in close collaboration with the settlers, have been completely integrated into the settlement movement. Again, we can discuss the details of this integration later, but this includes um, um, the recruitment of, of settlers who would not be recruited to the army before because of their history of violence into special military support units whose role is to protect the settlements, a role that they perceive as a permission <coughs> to go into proximate villages um, and, and engage in acts of violence. Um, so from this like, official integration right, of settler, settlers' violence into the Israeli army um, to the arming, a vast army um, of settlers, um, to explicit instructions 
to not enforce the evictions of um, outposts, and to more or less explicit instructions to not operate against settlers', settlers violence, something that rarely happened before anyway, right? And, and I did not say anything about the government's um, um, support of, of the continuous, continuous violations of the status quo in Al-Aqsa, um, but I want to move forward. So in February 2023, when hundreds of settlers were rioting in the Palestinian village Hawara, which is also next to Nablus, so very close to where I showed you before, um, burning house on the houses on the people in them, burning and breaking cars, um, destroying shops and property, um, shooting live ammunition. The army was there. He was, the army was there and did nothing. Um, and if he did something, it was to protect the settlers. The following day, when settlers were still strolling around the street of Hawara, making sure that no Palestinians feel free enough and safe enough, to go outside of their homes, the army was still there and still did nothing other than protecting the settlers. Um, we should bear in mind that Smotrich, our guy from before, has a plan, an explicit plan, for a transfer of most Palestinians from the West Bank. But we should also bear in mind that this is not a new thing and it's not a function just of this current government. Right? From 2005, um, almost 94% cases of settler violence ended without any, um, any um, charges being pressed. And only in 3% <coughs> there were convictions of some sort. So this is, it has you know, become worse and worse since the new government, but it's not just the outcome of this new government. All this brings us to the eve of October 7th. <coughs> this constant steering up, this escalation of violence in the West Bank, meant that the Israeli army was quite occupied in the West Bank. On the eve of October 7th, 26 battalions were deployed in the West Bank, whereas two to four, the numbers are under contestation, two to four battalions were deployed on the Gaza border. On October 6th, the night of October 6th, from these two to four battalions in the Gaza border, 120 special commando soldiers were deployed back to the West Bank from the Gaza border because Svi Sukkot, who is one of the parliament members from the um, um, from Smotrich party, decided he wants to build a sukkah in Hawara to commemorate um, um, the, is the Jewish um, holiday Sukkot. So on the morning of that Saturday of October 7th, when Hamas militants were crossing the border to Israel, sorry, there were very few combat soldiers, no, it's all, yes. There were very few um, <coughs> combat, combat soldiers in, in, the southern border, um, in the southern border. After, after making sure there is no possibility of a territorial solution in the West Bank, the settler movement has thus created conditions of radical insecurity for the rest of Israel. And once the war started, they have pushed for it to take the form of a genocidal war that would prepare the infrastructure for a renewed occupation in Gaza. And, and I don't want to discuss the question whether this is or it's not a form of genocide. I saw you have an entire lecture about it next week. 
Um, but what is important for me is that is that this is the plan of this movement. What, whatever the form the war takes, this the plan and the desire of this movement is that it will become a form of a genocide or a transfer um, to kind of clear the way for more settlement. So let us move to the war itself. Um, I don't have time to really talk about what happened um, in the West Bank since the war started, but this may give you a sense. So since October 7th, until this data is up until um, early January, um, we have at least 11 new outposts that were built. We have at least 18 new illegal roads that have been paved. We can talk later about the importance of roads and what they do. Um, we have 1,200 Palestinians, at least 1,200 Palestinians, who were deported or transferred. These are the areas um, from which communities have been either completely or significantly um, transferred. More than 400 cases of settlers' violence were recorded. In a third of them, um, there was use of um, live munition. More than 340 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank. 84 of the minors, at least eight, were killed by settlers, at least 116 injured by settlers. The numbers are not really certain because often you cannot know, also because often, as I said before, there is no difference. Right now, the settlers are a complete part of, of the army, either, as, either officially or as support military unit, whatever that is. But let's move to Gaza. So, um, Okay, these are roads, we can talk about roads later. On the 12th of February, 2023, shortly after the new Netanyahu government was um, sworn into office, Orit Stork, Minister of Settlements and National Missions, which is uh, an office that was created especially for her, um, um, was um, interviewed um, to the, she's by the way also from Smotrich's party, um, she gave an interview to the um, religious channel, Channel 7 in Israel. And she said there that Gaza is also part of the land of Israel, that the disengagement <coughs> was a human right violation, a dark time, she said, in the history of the land, and that with God's will, we will return there. This was not a single time. Um, on March 21st, she was again interviewed by the same channel and said that the reoccupation of Gaza would be very painful, would entail many victims, but it will happen, she promised. Now, let me be absolutely clear, Stroke is a marginal figure in the government. Her ability to actually influence decision making is quite small. In fact, once the war started, Netanyahu has brought into the government uh, another party from the center in order to create a new locus of decision making that would basically push away the Smotrich, part, the Smotrich and Ben Gvir party. So they're not on the table making these decisions, but also when she said that in March 21st, um, she did not say it in, in a vacuum or out of her own imagination. She said it in relation to a new legislation that was introduced by the Netanyahu government. So, so basically, 2005, there is the disengagement. As part of the disengagement, five settlements are being evicted from the West Bank. There is a legislation saying that it's not allowed, it's illegal to resettle these particular areas. In March last year, 
the Netanyahu government reverted this um, legislation, basically allowed a return to these five places. And Stroop said that this is an Archimedean point that would eventually allow a return to Gaza. Now, I don't think the settlers planned the war. I don't think, given all the conspiracy theory out there, I don't think they have planned October 7th. But what has been the largest disaster in the history of the Jewish people since the Holocaust? What has then become the largest disaster of the Palestinian people ever, including 1948? What has been an inconceivable disaster for so many has been taken by the religious right as an opportunity, maybe even an opportunity to be celebrated. Extra parliamentary movements are already organizing to return to Gaza. Again, these are marginal, but they are becoming more and more central. Just <coughs> yesterday, there was a big conference with more than 1,000 people, including ministers, including ministers from the Likud party, right? So not just the religious right parties, talking about plans to return to Gaza. Um, but above all, I guess, if I, even though I think this is still very marginal and not part of the main decision making, we should bear in mind that this is an organized movement that has proven to be immensely effective in changing reality by creating facts on the ground. Now, even if this is a fantasy, and, and the person who organized this said at the time that this was a joke. I'm not sure he, he would still say this today, but at least at the time he said this was a joke. It meant to open the, the conversation. Um, but even if this is a fantasy, fantasies do have important effects on the political reality. Right? They work to change the limits of the imagination and of the imaginable. And the settler movement has been very successful in changing these limits, in either opening them up or narrowing them down, depending on how we want to look at it. And the irreversibility thesis is precisely an outcome of this. And I did not speak at all about the long-lasting collaboration of Israeli governments, and specifically Netanyahu with Hamas, that was all done in order to prevent a valid Palestinian partner in the West Bank in order to protect the settlement. But I want to move to the third and last part of my talk. So on October 7th, when Hamas militants were waging um, in the Israeli south, and the military, the Israeli military, unprepared for the event, failed to protect um, and provide aid for people locked in their homes for hours, sometimes for days, a rising general in the Israeli military, Barak Hiram, <coughs> arrived at Kibbutz Be'eri, which is one of the kibbutzim which suffered the most um, on that day. Now, Hiram arrived um, to the kibbutz at 4 p.m., reminding you Hamas forces were there from before 7 a.m. At that point, the first tank, right, no tanks, no helicopters, just a few soldiers running around. The first tank also arrived at the kibbutz, very long story, make it slightly shorter. Um, a complex hostage situation develops in which Hamas forces hold hostage 14 people in Beirut. There are some negotiations, some crossfire, and um, two hostages um, are being taken out. And at some point, Hiram says, we need to finish the event and orders the tank to shoot at the house, even at the life of the hostages. 
um, the 12 hostages and all of Hamas people um, were killed. Hiram, I should note, lives in a very small settlement called Koa, next to Hebron, at the middle, in the middle of the West Bank. Now the horrible events in Berry, and, and I should emphasize um, again, given all the misinformation, that this was an, an this was an extraordinary event. This was not the logic of the day. This was one of the very few events in which hostages were sacrificed um, for the sake of the war. Um, but this event could be framed as a horrifying choice. I mean, it's an unprecedented event, and, and indeed the New York Times, um, when he did the uh, um, um, report on this event, he, he, he gave it the, uh, the title, A General's Dilemma. And this framing undoubtedly has some truth to it. But I think the more troubling truth is that for Hiram, this is part of a much more coherent ideology. And for now, I will call this ideology preferring war over life. In an interview to an Israeli reporter called Ilana Dayan, three weeks after the event in Berry, when the details were still not known to the public, um, he explained what he saw as the failure, or actually the series of failures that brought to the events of, of the day. And I quote him. I also think, he says this after he kind of gives a few other reasons, I also think that we had your failure of the, of the conception of the Israeli people, an illusion that failed us. We all wanted to feel that we are a high-tech nation that can live the war of the past behind, end quote. Now, the lesson for him is not that one cannot be a high-tech nation once while engaging in an occupation and while keeping two, more than two million people under siege on the state's border. The lesson for Hiram, and I quote him again, that we must not tell ourselves stories that are easier, that are easier for us to live with, that our enemies are not there to exterminate us, that under some conditions and some adjustments and slightly better living conditions, attacks such as these would not happen, end quote. And, and again, the point for him is not that the reality of occupation and siege is so radical that minor adjustments and slightly better living conditions is, in, is insufficient to address the situation. The point is, and I quote, that I am fearful that if we return to our wrong ways, and if we try to negotiate with the other side, we will enter a trap that would bind us and would not allow us to do what is necessary to go in, that is to go into Gaza, he talks before the ground invasion, and to kill them. He, he does not say who them is. When Diane asks him about the possibility of negotiation to get the hostages back, he refuses this option. When she asks him, um, where he will be in a week's time, he says with a smile, this smile, precisely. I hope that deep inside, and in a year, she asks him, maybe still deep inside, he continues smiling. Now, I quote this interview in length because I think it was precisely this ideology, this ideology that prefers killing them over any negotiation to save the hostages, that had allowed the event in Berry to take place. It was not a necessary event. It was a function of a very, very coherent way of life or perception. And I quote it because this ideology goes well beyond Hiram. 
Already on that Saturday of October 7th, Smotrich announced that now is the time to be cruel, not to take the hostages into account. And this is a very generous translation because the Hebrew um, um, formulation can be translated as it's, we should not really care about the hostages. Um, and Smotrich has been quite consistent with this ever since. Um, and in a way, this ideology has shaped the war from its beginning. It has led to the killing of more than 25, 900 Palestinians in Gaza due to the complete carelessness to lives there, to the displacement of more than 1.7 million people, often several times again and again. It is what allowed for the hunger to spread, and it has further led to the killing of at least seven Israeli hostages in at least three um, um, incidents directed by the military, um, probably many, many more hostages. Um, and it is leading to the ongoing abandonment of these people there. The divide between a politics of life and a politics of death, of military power and territorial expansion, has never been that clear. Partly it is a religious ideology that prefers the sanctity of the land of Israel, of Eretz Israel, and the Jewish people, Am Israel, um, prefers the sanctity of those over the sanctity of actual life, of actual people, actual individuals living in this land. But importantly, Hiram is not a religious person. Um, and so this ideology goes well beyond that. This politics clearly targets Palestinians. It has been targeting Palestinians for decades now. But also, as I said, it fosters an indifference to the lives of the hostages, so to Jewish lives as well, and has further targeted the liberal existence of Israelis. Indeed, this willingness of the government to sacrifice its own citizens, which has become painfully clear in the last four months, has not begun on October 7th. On the seven months, on the seven months uh, before that, this government promoted a radical constitutional revolution which basically sought to achieve two purposes. First, to keep Netanyahu out of prison. I think a lot of what we need to understand about Israel politics revolve around the need to keep Netanyahu out of prison. And second, to remove obstacles to the annexation of the West Bank. So the settlement movement and Netanyahu <coughs> needs to be out of prison, basically joined forces um, in this judicial revolution. Already then it became clear, or should have become clear, that the settlements are not just obstacle for any solution with the Palestinians, they are a risk to the very existence of the state of Israel as we know it or as we knew it or maybe it never existed as such. Maybe it's my own fantasy. But from here emerges my hope. So when Ron Benvenisti talked about the irreversibility thesis, he said that at stake is not just the number of settlers or the amount of land taken, it is um, political will. And I quote him, theoretically, it is possible to dismantle, to dismantle segments and to take down roads, but do the facts that are being established and above all the time passing fortify the political power supporting the continuation of the occupation or fortify the political powers objecting to it, end quote. The answer for him and for many of us for years has been obvious. 
the vast majority of Israelis do not have the political will to change these facts. But perhaps the alternative power is now beginning to understand that it is not only Palestinian lives that would become, and what does it mean, right? On, on, it is not only Palestinian lives that would become impossible, disposable, unbearable, unexistent, but also would theirs. At that point, the will may, just may, grow stronger. And then, and, and I guess this is the important bit for me, maybe then the equation of us versus them would finally shift. Thank you. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for a wonderful talk. Um, and I'm only following what my colleagues often do. Um, they would abuse their position as chairs <laughs> and ask the first questions. And I'll be doing the same. So, but I will only be asking maybe one or two questions because I know um, we have so many questions and people just want to ask um, you, you know, their questions. So uh, I'm just, you know, I'm so happy that you ended your presentation, you know, and you were quite hopeful. Um, and there's hope, and it's always great to have hope. And I you know, still would like to ask you about the question of whether or not it is possible to have a viable Palestinian state. Because in the end, we're still talking about a two-state solution. And it seems that people still want a two-state solution. I think our speaker last week as well <coughs> mentioned that it would be great for Israelis and the Palestinians to have a two-state solution. Um, I've read an article um, by Daniel Seidman, I think, is an Israeli attorney advising David Cameron. And apparently he argues in this article that it is possible to deoccupy um, you know, the West Bank and in order for Palestine to have a viable state, you need to at least relocate 200,000 Israeli settlers. It sounds great, so if you can um, incrementally occupy, you can also incrementally deoccupy according to him. And I thought that was really, you know, again, hopeful. But the question is, in terms of political will, um, we've seen what happened to Isaac Rabin or even Ariel Sharon when he tried to deoccupy Gaza, and people are still cursing him, if I'm not mistaken. So do you think there is hope uh, when it comes to persuading or perhaps imposing and relocating at least 200,000 um, Israeli settlers from the West Bank. So you said you're, you're happy and then hopeful, and now you're asking me a question that forces <laughs> me to go the other way. Um, you, I'm awful like that. I'm so it's sorry. It's fine. It, it brings me to my more familiar place of not being hopeful. I used to say I don't mind. Right? I used to say I don't mind. One state solution, two state solution, whatever solution, it's very clear that, that the occupation needs to end. And, right, and, and whatever comes out of it, a, a big democratic state, two democratic states, maybe one of them, one big, I, I don't care, right? Whatever is doable. 
I can say that up until October 7th, I thought it would be more doable to have a one-state solution in some federative arrangement. Um, and so this is where I was thinking we should push for. I'm no longer sure. Now, this can mean that we can relinquish all hope. But I'll tell you where my uh, bit of a hope nevertheless comes from. Um, what we also saw in October 7th is that Israel cannot exist without the US. If the US was not there, Hezbollah would have joined. This, everything would have looked very different now. Now, it's up to the Americans to take advantage of this Right and and basically say that's it. I think the only the, to be honest, I don't think it's about political will. I think it's about what the U.S. does. Right? It's about Biden. Um, and I, but I think in this particular moment, after October seven, <laughs> if we take control over the narrative, and we and and I really believe in that. Right? I really believe that what we saw that day is that you cannot defend the settlements and defend the borders of the country at the same time. Right? Like it's, it's, it's a security question. And, and if we're thinking about will and about the wills of Israelis, I think this is the card that we need to pull. And, and I think the Americans are the ones who should say, unless you do that, we stop delivering new weapons. We, so we take all of our ships away, right? Whatever Nasrallah does, it's fine with us. And <laughs> until they do that, I don't think there will be a political will. But I think now we have a chance. And, and, and I don't, un to be really honest, I do not understand how come Biden, who is losing the election to Trump because of this war, does not take advantage of this and becomes the president who solved the problem in the Middle East. He has Saudi Arabia with him. He has Egypt with him. There are all these forces around. There are f enough forces within now the Israeli center who would be willing to move at least to that direction. Um, and, and, so, and so I think it can happen, but it cannot happen just from political will of Israelis. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you.